Well, it's uh, Nugent News time. Sunday. Sunday, Little Bastards Fun Days. They used to say it's Second City. I don't even know if Second City is operating. You know, they had the fire and then the pandemic thing. And then they fired everybody for, you know, microaggressions. It's like, come on. Funny is clearly challenging in this 21st century of ours. But anyway, uh, we... We report on the news, we comment on the news today with the Chicago Tribune as our guiding star. And of course, the Ukrainian invasion is at the top of the list. Uh, You know, what to make of all this? Well, first of all, the Russians cannot be trusted. These are, this really is the evil empire brought back by this KGB ferret Putin. Um, I don't think there's anything that was more surprising to me than the fall of the Soviet Union at the end of the Reagan administration and during the Bush administration. And I don't think there was anything as disappointing as the revanchist uh, government of Putin, handpicked by Yeltsin, by the way, who is a drunk. Uh, now, if you look at this from a Russian perspective, it was foolhardy for the Soviet Union to break up the way it did and relinquish territory the way it did. Uh, There was no rhyme or reason to any of that. So imagine if a U.S. president had presided over the dissolution of the United States, which, you know, in my opinion, is a possibility at least. And then another president came in and said, you know, that was stupid. We're going to take back Texas and Florida and the Russians objected to that you know that's from their perspective that's the way they look at uh this this is this was ours this is ours we have historical ties you know kiev was the original capital of the rus when the the rus are norwegians by the way uh, fellow normans who sailed down the rivers to kiev and and founded a principality and then If you look at the ancient history, not ancient, but a thousand years ago, uh, they moved to Moscow after they first started in Kiev. So, you know, from their perspective, this makes sense. On the other hand, uh, from the Ukrainian perspective, the Soviets under Stalin starved them to death. Millions of Ukrainians died as a result of Stalin. So they hate each other. Uh, They are all uh, traditionally Orthodox Christians, as I understand it. So there's no Islamic undercurrent here. It's a fight between Slavs, is what it amounts to. Uh, So it's not like Bosnia versus Serbia. It's Slavs versus Slavs. And the tragedy, of course, is that I think we easily 
Not easily, but we certainly could have stopped this if we had decided to embrace the Ukraine and take some at least cyber actions to, or at least a no-fly zone to protect Ukraine. I mean, this guy's armor columns were sitting right out there on open roads like the, the road to death. And uh, in in Iraq, and we certainly, and NATO certainly could have said, "Hey, you know what? Uh, we aren't going to stand for that. We're going to do something kinetic to you, and you're going to have to decide whether or not you want to escalate this to nuclear." Now he just has put his nuclear defenses on alert, quote unquote, whatever that means. I read a column today. Uh, saying that by some guy in the Atlantic who had no particular credentials, saying that we shouldn't respond in kind. Well, I think we damn well should respond in kind. And I don't think this guy, frankly, has the balls to escalate this into a nuclear confrontation because that's the end of Mother Russia, maybe the end of the United States too. But I say you call his bluff. Now, maybe you don't up the ante, but you call his bluff. The Ukrainians, now, I at the time, as Joe was coming on every day with his play-by-play on Russian conquest of Ukraine, I could not understand what he was doing. But now, I think I do. The outpouring of support for Ukraine has really taken me by surprise from the Democrats, the rank-and-file, you know, the, the usual gang of supporters for for all things woke and liberal they are out there you know putting their ukrainian flags and at first i thought what a goofy virtue signal you know when you had a chance you didn't stop you didn't support any blood and treasure for for this but it it looks to me like what joe was doing and obviously he understands his people better than i do he was positioning this as a cause so that if you want to support Joe Biden, which, of course, everybody does on that side of the fence, then you need to get to, you know, ich bin ein Ukrainer. I mean, a lot of these people, I'm sure, couldn't have found it on a map. But Joe, you know, seems to have rallied his troops, and the court of public opinion is definitely behind the Ukraine and definitely against Putin. I think that's fine. And this this plays into the anti-Trump sentiment sentiment too. I honestly don't rule out that Trump may be a Manchurian candidate uh, of Putin. I think maybe Putin, you know, pushed him to run just to throw a monkey wrench into American politics and divide people and then was pleasantly shocked when Trump won. Uh, I mean, what else would account for, you know, like Mussolini and Hitler got along well. And both Trump and Putin are kind of the strong, macho, you know, autocratic types, obviously. So maybe they just like each I mean, Stalin and Hitler were buddies. Stalin admired Hitler, you know, because he was ruthless. But other than that, there's very little in my mind that explains why they were so close. Uh, Now, on one hand, you know, Russia refrained 
from the plains of Ukraine, if you will, during Trump's administration, which is interesting. Uh, I saw somebody speculate that, you know, Trump's whole attitude toward NATO was to favor Putin. I don't know if I buy that either. Because, uh, you know, Trump, I think, just is totally America first type of a guy. And the his position with Europe was, why shouldn't you defend yourselves? You got more money than we do now. And he took a similar posture to some extent vis-a-vis China. He didn't want to get involved with a trans-Pacific partnership, which was a stupid decision in my mind, because we put it damn thing together, and then and then we pull out. But be that as it may, uh, you know, I never did figure out Trump's, if Trump had any kind of strategic plan other than, hey, you know, we're in it for ourselves. You guys pick up the slack. You Pacific nations and, and NATO nations that have been relying on us. So I do think, though, that Biden bears a huge share of the blame here because when he pulled out of Afghanistan, I think that emboldened both China and Russia. They thought, well, this guy is pulling out, you know, he's catering to his left, his anti-war movement. The United States is weak, divided within. They're not going to stick up for anybody overseas, including Taiwan and including Ukraine. So we're going to take advantage of that. And I think they, like me, like I, expected that, you know, the American left would say, hey, we're not going to, you know, that's just these white people fighting. You know, we've got Black Lives Matter here and we're going to, uh, we're not going to spend any of that money for reparations on defending some white guys in a distant country. We're not going to spend any blood and treasure on this. Well, that's not how it panned out. You know, they, all of a sudden, you know, Ukraine is like the, like the uh, Spanish Civil War, and, and and this is the the anti uh, anti Franco movement, you know. So this is uh, much different than I expected it to play out. The Germans have decided to increase their defense spending over two percent of GDP. They're going to get off of uh, the, you know, Putin had them by the gonads here with with his natural gas. And they're going to start developing their own natural gas. So this whole green revolution, I think, is starting to... People are starting to realize that you're making yourself dependent on foreign production of carbon because you don't want to get your hands dirty with it. Well, Germany's got a ton of coal. They can get their nat gas elsewhere, albeit for more money. But... You know, they played right into Putin's hand, and he figured out, turn the pipeline off, and they'll they'll freeze. So he might have been better off doing this in September than in February, because it's getting warmer over there, right? So they can probably go for six months without gas from Russia, and hopefully, meanwhile, develop other alternative sources. So the other thing is the Ukrainians are fighting a lot harder than I think he probably expected. I think he probably expected them to just go Czechoslovakian back in 1957 uh, or in 1968 and just kind of say, you know what, we surrender. But the Ukrainians are, you know, that little island is the 
is the example uh, when the, <laughs> the, the, the Russian warship comes up and says, you know, surrender or we'll open fire. And their response is, fuck you. <laughs> so, I mean, it's kind of David and Goliath, right? So, uh, I think, you know, I thought this would go down like in a day. I really thought this was going to be a Kabul time frame. But uh, back to Biden's folly, you know, Joe doesn't understand how other countries read us. If they see weakness one place, they're going to extrapolate that out. And if the United States had just said, oh, well, Ukraine, you know, they're not in NATO, it's not our business, then that would be one thing. But here it turns out that Joe is going to be a tough guy on Ukraine, whereas he signaled weakness in Afghanistan. Honestly, that's almost worse. Because if he had not pulled, if he had said, you know what, Donald Trump wanted to abandon our overseas commitments, and I'm not going to do that, and said, we are going to stay in Afghanistan, and we're going to protect this democracy, then it would have sent a very strong signal to Putin that this guy is the anti-Trump. Instead, Biden came in and said, well, we're going to follow suit with Trump and we're leaving and, you know, screw it. Endless war. He sent pacifist signals. He sent appeasement signals. And Putin listened to that signal. And turns out now he's being inconsistent. Now he's saying, well... We will defend Ukraine, or you know, we'll pay. You'll pay sanctions if. And it, the only consistency is that he did throw sanctions on the Taliban, but you know, uh, clearly we're a lot more hawkish in Eastern Europe than we were in Af- Afghanistan. Now, what does that say about people of color? You know, <clears throat> I'll leave that alone. But. Uh, Joe's got his State of the Union coming out Tuesday. I actually think that, you know, this I thought would destroy Biden's approval ratings. But now that things seem to be turning the tide against Putin, I think it might actually help him. He looks oddly strong. So his State of the Union speech is coming up, and there was an article in the Tribune about it. And uh, Michael Waldman, who's a former spe- Clinton speechwriter, Said two weeks ago, the speechwriters probably thought they knew what was in the speech. Vladimir Putin had other ideas, indeed. And I mean, there was one one moment where I thought, you know, when um, Macron from France was uh, was negotiating talks, I thought maybe they could stop this. You know, maybe they could uh, they could scare Putin off, but. That I would have given Joe a lot of credit for, but didn't happen. I mean, anybody who knows Putin, KGB, traditional Russian uh, mindsets, the only thing they understand is force. And that's the one thing we didn't do here. But now the Germans are giving them weapons and gearing up their defense. And, you know, obviously Germany is Russia's nemesis. So, to the extent that he was trying to defend himself against NATO, which he, I don't know if he really was, he's, this has backfired. He was looking like a genius to me, an evil genius. 
Putin was. But now things are breaking bad. Things are breaking in a way that I didn't expect and in a way that I don't think he expected. So <laughs> neither one of us are geniuses. Now, the difference is that I am happy that I was wrong, but he has got to be sweating it a little bit. So real quick here, uh, inflationary environment. I think that's probably here for some time. Uh, tips are a good investment in that environment. Treasury, inflation, protection, securities. And if you want to know more about that, read uh, Elliot Raffleson in The Savings Game in today's Tribune. There's not that much in the Tribune, but, you know, honestly, one article can be worth the price of uh, admission as far as I'm concerned. Don't fall for that life insurance ad on TV. This is the, I see this ad about a million times. And guaranteed issue policy, $25,000. Whereas if you do get a medical exam, I got a million-dollar insurance policy. So don't go for those ads. I'm going to read this in more detail and figure out what what the reason is. Now, here's the latest hip uh, replacement for paradigm shift. Now we call paradigm shifts vibe shifts, okay? Um, And a lot of people like to work from home. So that's what this article is about. Pew Research Center. Let me try to pull out some stats here. Six of ten workers capable of work from home, tell Pew that their home doubles as their office. So that seems to be pretty stable. Once people work from home, they don't want to come back. 82% of people want to work from home at least one day a week. Again, 64% of participants say it's made their work-life balance easier. Of the work-for-home crew, 44% agree it's easier for you to get your work done and meet deadlines versus just 10% who say it's grown harder. 60% feel less connected to their colleagues. And I actually find myself, as I think I've said on this podcast, much more productive in an office. I mean, much more productive. Because there's just too many temptations for me. I'm lazy. I don't like to work. And when you're in an office, there's nothing to do but work. So, you know, it's I am an office creature. I always felt like I was going to be. So, Let's see. What else we got here? Not that much in the trib, which is fine by me. There's something about segregation's tall in Chicago in here. Um, and there's a guy named Harry, Henry Shelton. I worked for a guy named Henry Shelton um, that, does, that did rehab. And he, this Henry Shelton does rehab. But this Henry Shelton looks like, you know, he's a big man. <laughs> he's a wide man. 
And the Henry Shelton I worked for was a very thin man, so I don't know if it's the same one or different or whatever, but the article is about the cost of segregation and such. And uh, the Metropolitan Planning Council did a report on the cost of segregation. It found that segregation cost the region $44 billion in lost income, 83000 fewer bachelor's degrees, and about 200 lives cut short by homicides every year. I cannot understand how that could be. I cannot, I'm not going to bother researching the methodology, but how can, how can that be? What difference does it matter whether people live with people of the same color or not in terms of how much money they make? That's four point four billion, not forty four billion. If I said forty four billion, I was I miss I misread this. Now, one of the gentlemen who is involved with this, this is a WTTW. Uh, there's a program on WTTW. I think it's actually digital documentary series. I, I think it's just probably on the web. And I probably won't bother watching that, but one of the people involved is named Soren Spicknell. He's a data engineer and hobby photographer. Um, and Soren says he's got an un, a nine-minute tape talk called Unlearning the Bad Advice that Segregates Chicago. In it, he says a history of living primarily in largely homogenous white upper middle class communities led to stereotypes of those who weren't similar. When he moved to Chicago to attend IIT, peers and others on campus would say not to go south of 35th Street on campus. Uh, well, that may have been pretty good advice. But he says that as he slowly got to know the broader south side of the city, he unlearned a lot of what he'd been told and to understand that having an academic understanding of something like segregation is very different from having a detailed real-world conception of a place because you've actually been there and experienced it. Well, I go south of 35th all the time. I go to South Shore to play golf. Um, I go back to the courts every once in a while. So... Yeah, maybe he's got a point there, you know. But uh, here's a guy, John Nance. He moved to Country Club Hills. He was raised in Evanston. Uh, they 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 just decided to give reparations. But Nance criticizes having to qualify for credit and putting in an application to receive reparations. What does that have to do with repairing anything you've done to me? He says, let's see what else he says. Let, give me the money. Let me determine what I need to do if you are going to give me anything. It's a scab on top of a scab, and they keep piling up. The wound never really heals. Well, I'd say that's as good an argument against reparations as I've heard. It just makes things worse, apparently. Now, there's a thing called the Cook County Land Bank. Uh, this, this Henry Shelton is, uh, has done about 50 projects 
and some of them were in the suburbs. He just completed his thousandth property. So he is trying to disrupt segregation. And, uh, you know, the bottom line is that these folks are trying to create good housing. Well, everybody wants that. But if you don't get to the root of crime, then that's why those prices are different. Henry says, if this place he's talking about here was in Logan Square, it would be worth a million dollars. Where it is, it's $400,000, and that's not many miles away. Appraisers, moneylenders, the neighborhood getting a bad rap. Well, you know, the reason that it's worth less is because it's more dangerous. And so if you want to have property, if you want to have affordable housing, the best thing to do is to make it an unsafe neighborhood, right? Because <laughs> the demand goes down. Nobody wants to live a place where you're going to get shot, right? And if you want to make the property values go up, make it safer, which means you have to arrest the criminals. You have to break the gangs. And then... You're going to hear the cries of police brutality. So it is what it is for a reason, you know. We have found the uh, the fault is not in our stars, but in ourselves. But, you know, that's just common sense. So. But anyway, you know, I, I am somewhat encouraged by this democratic uh, posture on the Ukraine. I think what they're starting to see is that there is evil in the world. It only respects force. That's why we spend money on defense. That's why countries that don't spend money on defense are very vulnerable to those that do, because there are offensive countries, like Russia under Putin. You know, the best thing that could happen is a revolution in Russia and overthrow this guy. And they do seem to be having some civil unrest, but, you know, they deal with that very brutally. So we'll see what happens, though. Uh, it is actually heartening. And maybe now the mission that we have undertaken over the years to spread dem democracy and the rule of law will make a little more sense to folks. Putin is a dictator. It is not a democracy. It's harder for a democracy to go to war. This is the logic of what George Bush was trying to do in the early part of the century. And everybody called him a warmonger and everybody called him an imperialist. And, you know, uh, now maybe they can see the point of that. I don't know. And maybe if people see that you have to oppose evil forces with forces for good, maybe we'll start to see that that's what we have to do domestically in our own cities to fight the evildoers regardless of race, color, creed, or national origin, protect the innocent, persecute the guilty, and punish them and incarcerate them. Maybe common sense will prevail. We'll see. I haven't yet heard anything from BLM or anything else about why are we wasting all this money on these white people in Ukraine when we have black people in our own country who need reparations and such. We'll see if that comes to pass. But so far, I haven't heard Sanders do anything except criticize Trump. I haven't heard AOC. haven't heard a peep out of her. So maybe we can 
save something out of this country. So that's it for me today. Uh, half an hour. Not bad. Live long, prosper, and we will uh, talk to you again probably when the week magazine comes uh, into our mailbox here. Bye-bye. Oh, one other thing. I'm going to the Marquette DePaul game. Uh, I'm going to the Evan Scholar thing. Uh, it's on a Wednesday night, and uh, I look forward to hopefully seeing some of you uh, either at the stadium or pre-game or post-game or what have you. I've secured my ticket and uh, masks off, hopefully. So we will see some of you there. Bye-bye.